If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, Healing is the Children's Bread. This is the last of our three-part episodes on kicking over sacred cows, and we will finish this segment with a bang. We'll start out by discussing Paul's thorn in the flesh, and what the Bible really has to say about Paul's thorn and what it was. We'll refute the fatalistic view of having no control over the length and quality of life that we can expect to have on earth as Christians. The promises of God are very clear on the subject of longevity, which we'll explore together. So buckle up your seats for a thought-provoking and investigative look as we conclude this segment on kicking over religious cow traditions. Paul's Thorn in the Flesh One of the most prevalent objections raised today against the ministry of healing is Paul's thorn in the flesh. One traditional idea has led to another. The widespread teaching that God is the author of disease and that some of the most devout of his children he has desired to remain sick, and glorify him by exhibiting fortitude and patience. No doubt this has led to the idea that Paul had a sickness that God refused to heal. We do not believe that anyone who would take time to read all that God has to say on the subject of healing could ever form such a conclusion. Although there are many godly men and women who hold a contrary view, not only on this point, but on the whole subject of divine healing. It is merely a matter of study and investigation. Someone so aptly stated that deception wouldn't be so deceiving if it wasn't so deceptive. Paul's thorn in the flesh is a deceptive sacred cow that holds many in bondage. Religious ideas about Paul's thorn has caused so many to suffer needlessly, believing that they were pleasing God by remaining sick. Sadly, many people subscribe to the notion that God gave Paul some kind of illness in order to keep him humble and that God refused to heal him. 
Paul's thorn has been espoused to be anything from sore eyeballs to ingrown toenails, using Galatians chapter 4 verse 13 to espouse a sickness when it was in reference to Acts 14 verse 8 through 19. In 2 Corinthians 11:16-33, Paul in defense to his credibility under attack by false apostles goes into great detail about suffering, persecution, trials, tests, and hardships for the sake of the gospel. Such hardships like beatings, shipwrecked, all kinds of dangers, and he was even stoned to death and raised back from the dead. Please keep this all in mind because it is crucial to understand what Paul's thorn was when we look at the overall context. After this lengthy description, he begins chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians, talking about himself having visions and revelations, and even going to heaven to see God. Scripture interprets scripture. So let's see how the Bible uses the term thorn elsewhere in the Bible. The expression thorn in the flesh is never used in the Bible to mean sickness. And every time the phrase is used in the Bible, it is specifically stated what the thorn was. In the Old Testament, God said to Israel, If you don't kill those Canaanites when you possess the land, they will be thorns in your side. They will torment you. Just look at Numbers 33.55, Joshua 23.13, and Judges chapter 2 verse 3. So here's the first example. Before the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, Moses told them in Numbers 33.55, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. Here the scripture itself tells us plainly that the barbs in your eyes and the thorns in your sides of the Israelites were the inhabitants of Canaan, and not eye disease or sickness. Moses was warning them that the Canaanites, if allowed to remain, would be a constant annoyance to them and a snare. Here's the next example. Many years later, Joshua said the same thing about the Canaanites in Joshua chapter 23 verse 13. Then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. The third example is in the book of Judges. The Lord told the children of Israel the same thing in Judges 2.3. Now therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. The fourth witness is David, who said in 2 Samuel 23.6, But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. In all four cases, the Bible makes it explicit what the thorns are, so there is no need for wild speculations, and in every case, the thorns refer to personalities and not sickness. Let's now look at the usage today. We still use the same expression. According to the Longman Dictionary of Contemporary English, the new edition, when we say that someone is a thorn in one's side, we are saying that that person is a continual cause of annoyance or problems. Similar expressions are a pain in the neck and a pain in the rear. So bottom line is, Paul's thorn in the flesh was not sickness and disease. Now since Satan is the god of this world and his kingdom of darkness is all about keeping people from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I wonder if he may have felt a little threatened by all of Paul's achievements and advancements in preaching the gospel all over the ancient world. I wonder if he may have said to himself, Satan, you need to do something about this Paul fellow. He is getting too many people saved. I know, I'll assign one of my most devious of demons to his case, to stir up trouble wherever he goes. 
This demon will make life so difficult for Paul, stirring up so much persecution that he will give up and want to quit the ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Now the original Greek word for messenger here is angelos. According to Strong's Concordance, it means a messenger, envoy, one who is sent, an angel, and a messenger from God. In Paul's case, it was an angel of Satan. So Paul's thorn was a demonic spirit sent by Satan to torment and annoy him, or a person or persons carrying that demonic spirit. It was certainly not eye disease, migraine, or some sickness, as many have wildly speculated. This Greek word angelos appears 186 times in the Bible, and is translated angel 179 times, and messengers the other seven times. In all 186 cases, without exception, it refers to a person and not a thing or a disease. It is also really interesting to note that in Rotherman and Weymouth's translations use the pronoun he to refer to Paul's thorn or the messenger of Satan. As for this, three times I besought the Lord to rid me of him. Both of these translators use personal pronouns of he and him when speaking of Paul's thorn. So these two pronouns, as well as the word angel or messenger, prove that Paul's thorn was, as he himself plainly shows, a satanic personality and not some sickness. In other words, the Bible reveals that Paul's thorn was a satanic spirit being and not a disease. Here we have it. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan to torment or make life miserable for Paul. The word torment used here means to buffet, to strike with a clenched fist or an open hand. In other words, it was a steady buffeting to keep the revelation of the gospel from being preached. In Genesis, God foretold that Jesus would come to the earth and crush Satan's dominion, but in the process, the devil would strike his heel or make him suffer for it through the crucifixion. You can read that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In other words, when it comes to ministry, there is a price to be paid called persecution. We are told to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, Mark 8:34. That cross, by the way, is not sickness and disease, since Jesus already bore the burden for us through his redemptive work. We never see Jesus ever sick or having diseases, and neither should we. If Paul's thorn was sickness, then it would mean that Paul was continuously sick. But we don't see a sickly Paul in the Bible. And how could the apostle travel great distances, preaching boldly and healing the sick, if he was so sickly? The sick would have just laughed at him for preaching about God's healing power. What we do find, however, is an apostle of God who was frequently persecuted by people, not sicknesses. Paul enumerates his sufferings or buffetings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 29, and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. Not one time does he mention sickness or disease. Paul not only tells us that this thorn was an angel of Satan, But he also tells us what the angel came to do, to buffet me, or as Rotherham translates it, that he might be buffeting me. Now the word buffet means blow after blow, as when the waves buffeted the boat, and as when they buffeted Christ. Accordingly, Weymouth translates Satan's angel dealing blow after blow. Since buffeting means repeated blows, if Paul's buffeting was a disease, it would have had to have been many diseases 
or the same disease many times repeated to be called buffeting. The devil is not going to stand idly by while we contribute to the advancement of God's kingdom in the earth. The enemy is going to stir up persecution, even by religious, well-meaning Christian folks. That is why Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And 2 Timothy 2.3, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one said serving Jesus would be a cakewalk, but we don't have to be sick while we're doing it. The enemy will try to make it as difficult as possible through persecution, but not beyond what we can handle according to the faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. God is faithful to restrain the enemy from overwhelming us with temptations, trials, and tests. Since Paul was so prominent in the ministry, he was a target and received special treatment from the enemy. 2 Timothy 4.14, Acts 13.50, chapter 17, verse 5, and chapter 20, verse 19. For example, let's look at Acts chapter 14, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 19 to 20. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There is a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him from outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Since it was not sickness but an evil spirit, Jesus was telling Paul that he had to resist the devil. It was a matter of Paul acting on the authority of God's word to defeat the purpose of the messenger of Satan, according to James chapter 4, verse 7. James didn't say that the devil would flee from God, for it was not God's responsibility to resist him, but the devil will flee from us, who are here on the earth. So if Paul didn't resist this messenger of the devil in Jesus' name, then God wouldn't. Let us say it another way. God couldn't if Paul didn't. Jesus couldn't do a thing about it if Paul didn't act on the authority of God's word. The moment Paul exercised his God-given authority, the Lord's grace and power would have immediately kicked in. The greater one, the Holy Spirit, or as Jesus called him, the finger of God, would have flicked that demon out of the way. 1 John 4.4 4 and Luke 11.20 In 2 Corinthians 12.8, Paul goes on to say, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is God's power at work in those who believe, to do what we don't have the power in ourselves to do. In effect, Jesus was encouraging Paul to speak the word in the name of Jesus and trample that messenger of Satan under his feet. When we realize that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, in John 15:15, 15, 15, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4:13. Then what Jesus said in 2 Corinthians 12:9, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness," becomes a reality in our lives. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Luke 10.19 Jesus said, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. 
However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Clearly, God did not give the thorn to Paul in order to keep him humble. The Lord was saying to Paul, Use the grace I have given you and resist the devil and trample him under your feet, as we just read in Luke ten nineteen to 20 Some have thought that Paul had too much pride because of the revelations, so God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. I don't believe you can find in the New Testament any evidence that God had anything to do with giving Paul a thorn in the flesh. God does not give his ministers a revelation of his word and then hinder them from preaching it. Concerning verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, is referring to the fact that if it had not been for the messenger of Satan assigned against Paul to stir up trouble everywhere he preached, Paul would have been exalted to the point that he could have influenced the known world with his revelation of the gospel. So nothing would have stopped him from spreading the good news of Jesus throughout the entire Roman world at that time. But he was not able to preach it freely without a fight of faith, for Satan was hindering him at every step of the way. Paul could command the devil to leave the earth because he has a right to be here until Adam's lease runs out. We can't separate sickness and disease from Satan. Remember, disease came with the fall of mankind. The fall was of the devil. Sickness and sin have the same origin, the devil. To be clear, Jesus' attitude towards sickness was an uncompromising, overcoming battle over Satan. His attitude towards sin and sickness was identical. He dealt with sickness the same way he dealt with demons. Since sickness and disease are of the devil, we must follow in the footsteps and attitude of Jesus and deal with disease as Jesus dealt with it. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. It's amazing that so many religious people say Paul's thorn was something other than a messenger of Satan, when in the same verse that Paul mentioned it, he plainly stated what his thorn was. Even common sense would tell us God did not send the messenger of the devil to torment Paul and give him a hard time. Paul's statement concerning a messenger of Satan in the literal Greek-English New Testament states it this way, that me he might buffet. A personal pronoun is used here in the Greek text. That tells us it was not sickness at all. Suffering according to the will of God. 1 Peter 4.19 So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. A side point I would like to briefly explore with you is a sacred calf concerning misinformed folks who think succumbing to sickness is a means of suffering for Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, could we be suffering for the wrong reason? The Bible clearly states that is a possibility for Christians. Romans 8.17 Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So what was Paul referring to when he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in regards to share in his sufferings? Was Jesus referring to suffering sickness and disease like pneumonia, cancer, tuberculosis? No. Biblical suffering is twofold. Number one, crucifying our flesh, in other words, saying no to sin, and enduring persecution for being a Christian. We know that healing is part of the atonement. Consider Isaiah chapter 53. 
that in the same context of Jesus being pierced for our transgressions, and by his stripes we are healed in verse 5. In verse 4, Jesus took up our sicknesses and carried our pains. Also stated in Matthew 8.17, after Jesus had healed people in their bodies. So this is not talking about spiritual healing, but specifically physical healing. All evangelical Christians have a firm understanding that Jesus took care of all of our sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. And I believe that too. So it would be unscriptural for us as Christians today to think that we still need to suffer the penalty of sin, which Jesus already did so on our behalf 2,000 years ago, right? If I sin today, I stand on the promise of 1 John 1, nine, without any need to do penance or pay or suffer for my sin. Now, if healing is just as much a part of our redemption and atonement as the forgiveness of sins, what makes us think that we should suffer sickness and disease when Jesus had carried it for us and paid the price for our healing 2,000 years ago also? To suffer for something that Jesus had suffered for us as our substitute is unbiblical and would be regarded as God's grace in vain for our lives in that area. 2 Corinthians 6.1 Nor is suffering for doing wrong, like breaking a civil law, is considered suffering for Jesus. Just read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19-20. to So let's now briefly look at true biblical suffering. Number 1. Suffering in the body. Without a doubt, the greatest form of biblical suffering comes from bringing our bodies under subjection. Until our bodies are redeemed, we have to continually contend with the sinful nature in our physical bodies. We can always get away from people who are trying to give us a hard time, but we can't run away from our own physical bodies. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So does crucifying the sinful nature in our body or bringing it under subjection sound like fun? Of course, the Bible is not telling us to be a sadomasochist. There is no grace to be gained by abusing our physical bodies, according to Colossians 2.23. When we say no to fulfilling the evil desires of our body, that is biblical suffering and is the most difficult to overcome. Hebrews 12 verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? His body did not want to go to Calvary. The struggle with his humanity was so intense that the blood vessels in his forehead burst open and bled. Luke 22.44 And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Matthew 26.41 Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Hebrews 5 verse 7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The Spirit is willing but our physical body is weak, according to Matthew 26.41. Because our body will always gravitate towards sin and selfishness, God has charged us with the sacred duty to bring our physical bodies under subjection 
to offer them unto God as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 23, and chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it states, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Like Jesus, we learn obedience through suffering, by obeying the Bible over the world, flesh, and the devil. Hebrews 5 verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. We do this out of love and honor for God, and the joy of knowing that we can become useful to the Master in ministering to others by his power, flowing through a sanctified vessel of honor. Hebrews 12 verse 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20, it states, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27 No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. Now we come to the second form of suffering according to God's will, that is suffering persecution. So nowhere in the New Testament will you find a scripture that supports the notion that suffering from a sickness is suffering for Jesus. In fact, Jesus came to deliver us from the oppression of sickness and disease, which is the work of Satan, according to Acts 10.38 and 1 John 3.8. However, the Bible has numerous references concerning Christians suffering under persecution for being a Christian. Even the Apostle Paul described his buffeting not consisting of sickness. In 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 1 Peter 2.21 To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Notice what Peter says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in regards to what a painful trial is, and suffering for Christ, suffering for being a Christian and being insulted. How about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 39? 
Notice the example of suffering being used here. Insults, persecution, prison, and the confiscation of property. No mention of pain, sickness, or disease, and for good reason, because it has never been God's will to endure and suffer such things. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. Second Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For us as Christians, something is terribly wrong if we are suffering pain, sickness, and disease. It would be just as wrong for us walking in fellowship with God, to be harassed with condemnation, guilt, anxiety, and fear. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, according to Galatians 3.13, poverty, sickness, and death. So there is suffering according to the will of God and suffering for things that are not the will of God. It is our responsibility to ensure we are not being taken advantage of by the enemy so as to hinder our work for God and our testimony of God's power to deliver, save, and to heal. Sacred Cow Number 7 An Appointed Time to Die There are people who believe incorrectly concerning when and how they will die. There are people who believe incorrectly concerning when and how they will die. They misquote Hebrews 9.27 and say, Well, you know, everyone has their appointed time to die, and they will have no say-so in the matter. But that is not what this passage of Scripture is saying at all just as man is destined to die once. The Bible is plainly stating that it is appointed unto man to die one time physically. This refutes the philosophy of reincarnation. The context of the passage is that Jesus has appeared once, that man will die once, and Jesus was sacrificed only once. So what is the emphasis here? Once. It's not talking about the specific timing of when a person will die, but that they will die physically only one time and then face the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Some folks have the idea that everyone has a certain day, hour, and time 
that is preset for everyone to die. Supposedly, when the clock clicks on your time to die, Grim Reaper comes on the scene to take you away, ready or not. Whether you are 16, 25, 35, or 55 years old, when your number is up, for example at 3.45 p.m. Friday afternoon, March the 10th, it's exit stage left for you. Now, I'm not stating that God doesn't know when we're going to leave this earth. The point I'm trying to make according to scripture is that it's really us, not God, that determines when and how we leave this earth. How many times have you heard people say, well, I guess it was just their time? That is not biblical or accurate. They are misquoting Hebrews 9.27, that a person will die at some appointed time. But the Bible is simply saying that man will die physically only once. Certainly, we are not promised to live down here in this present body forever if the Lord tarries his coming. We will die one time physically, or as the Bible calls it, fall asleep. The Bible calls it falling asleep in him in Acts 13.36. We can have victory even in death as a child of God, knowing that we have finished our course with joy and are going to heaven. Going to heaven in style, full of years, full of life, aged and satisfied and ready to go. There is no defeat in that. Even when we lay our body down, it won't be long before we will come back and pick it up again, glorified. This is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? What we are promised in the Bible is to live a long, full, blessed, and satisfying life. This makes a strong argument for healing, doesn't it? We can't live a long life and be full of days if we die as a teenager or in our 20s and say we experienced a life in full. We can't die in midlife and say this scripture came to pass in our lives. If cancer snuffs a person's life out at age 49, did they live a full life? No, they didn't. Was that God's perfect will for them? Obviously, no, it wasn't. If they were saved, then they went to heaven, and that is wonderful. However, they were robbed of the fullness of life they could have had here on earth, or as I would put it, ripped off. There is no way to hyper-spiritualize Psalms chapter 91. It is clearly speaking of length of physical life. In Psalms 91.15, He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Sometimes people think they are ready to go home early because they are tired of life. That is probably because they are not living on the level of victory they should be. If they were living in great victory, they would not be in such a rush to go home and be with the Lord. Some folks want the rapture to take place now because they are miserable in life. They owe money, marriage problems, or problems on the job. That is not a good reason for the Lord to take us out really quick. What about all those who have not heard of Jesus yet? Are we just being selfish? We should rise up in faith, use the authority in Jesus' name, and move up to a higher level in victory. We should enjoy life as God intends for us. When trials and tests come our way, count it all joy, according to James 1-2. Don't cry to the Lord, Oh, please, Lord, take me out. I'm tired. That is being weak in faith. Jesus is not coming back for a wimpy, defeated church, cowering from the devil. Jesus is coming back for a glorious and triumphant church, So in the meantime, we need to occupy until he comes, living on the level of victory he has called us to. When we live like this, we are not in a hurry to leave. 
We need to have a sense of purpose and reason to live. We have the gospel to preach and the great commission to obey. We're not just biding our time here on earth and wishing life would just hurry up and be over with. That is a big mistake. We only have one shot at this life and then we have eternity with the Lord. You know, checking out early from this life is something the devil would be more than happy to accommodate us with if we let him. What I see in scripture is that the Lord does not look too kindly on grumblers and complainers. Consider the Israelites, 1 Corinthians 10.10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Numbers 14.26, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall, every one of you twenty years old or more, who is counted in the census, who have grumbled against me. Philippians 2.14 states, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Next, I would like for us to consider this concept, the death of the righteous. A good example of the death of the righteous is Jacob. Having lived a full life, he knew when his days were near, and he called all his sons into the room and prophesied over each of them. At the end, he pulled up his feet and gave up his spirit. No terrible ravenous disease, no tubes or drugs or racked with terrible pain. He was not forced out of his body prematurely. He was not robbed of life by the devil. That is the way to go, full of years, full of life, and to see the fruits of your labor. I believe that to be the perfect will of God for all of his children. We don't have to die with one of Satan's stinking diseases. Not even two years of our life. Not a day or an hour from our life. It's not his to take. We belong to the Lord. Our bodies have been bought at a price, and we are to honor God with our bodies by keeping it alive and in health until we have been satisfied and run our whole course with joy. 1 Corinthians 6.20 By God's grace and through faith in His word, I am going to live a full life. I have only one shot at this life. After this life is eternity, and I can never come back and glorify God in this physical body again. It is absolutely none of the devil's business when and how I go. We have a lot to do with it. Balaam said, In Numbers 23.10, Let me die the death of the righteous, and may my end be like theirs. Genesis 25.8 Then Abraham breathed his last, and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. In chapter 35 verse 29, So Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. Chapter 49.33 When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. 1 Chronicles 29.28 So David died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor, and Solomon his son reigned in his place. 2 Chronicles 24.15 But Jedidiah grew old and was full of days, and he died and he was 130 years old when he died. In Jesus' name, let's live to a good old age, full of days, for God's glory. How we live can add or shorten our life. 
how we live makes a difference. There are too many scriptures that tell us that how we live will have an effect on the quality and length of life. It's not God's fault or responsibility concerning how long we live on this earth. He has already provided His grace through His great and precious promises that will enable us to live long and be satisfied with a good life. If we failed to receive it, then God did not fail, neither did His word. We just failed to receive. The promise still stands and is available for all His children. However, there are conditions to longevity. We can't be violating God's word and expect to enjoy a good and long life. In Job 42.16 After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. Deuteronomy 5.32 So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 8 Observe therefore all the commands I am giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has sworn to your forefathers to give them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord your God has sworn to give your forefathers. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14 And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Proverbs 4.10 Listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. Proverbs 9.11 For through me your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. Proverbs 10.27 The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Psalms 55.23 But you, O God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of corruption. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men will not live out half their days. Ecclesiastes 7.17 Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Here's a quote from Douglas Malloch. Death comes, then we blame our God, and weakly say, Thy will be done. But never underneath the sod has God imprisoned anyone. God does not send disease or crime or carelessness or fighting clans. And when we die before our time, the fault is man's. His is a God of life, not death. He is the God that gives us birth. He is not shortened by a breath, the life of any on the earth. And he would have us dwell within the world our full allotted years. So blame not God for our own sin makes our own tears. So how long is long as far as life on this earth? Is 45 long or 53? Or how about 66? Many Christians look at Psalms 90 and think that 70 to 80 years 
is the maximum life expectancy for God's people. However, when you look at the context of this chapter, it is the psalm of Moses concerning the backslidden Israelites who died in the desert living under the wrath of God. Look at verse 7, and you will see that this is not talking about people living under God's favor. Being cut off at midlife is a curse, and we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. In speaking of the millennial reign of Jesus on the earth, consider what the Bible has to say about longevity in Isaiah 65.20. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth, and he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. In Numbers 14.29, the Lord declared that those twenty years and older would not enter the promised land, but would die in the desert, just as the Israelites said that they would. In Numbers 14, verse 32 to 35, they would spend 40 years in the desert, so that generation would have been dying around 70 or 80. So this is not meant to be the maximum for God's people walking in His will. Psalms 97, We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is seventy years, or eighty if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass, and we fly away. If you're not satisfied at the age of eighty, or ninety, or even a hundred, then keep on living. In Genesis 6-3, God set man's life to 120 years. This was a drastic cut in long life when you consider Methuselah, who lived 969 years prior to Noah's flood. Not only were godly men living a very long time, but wicked people as well. Can you imagine how evil people could become increasingly wicked over a lifetime that spanned hundreds of years? I can see why God set the limit to 120 years after the flood. There is no other scripture in the Bible that has changed the 120-year mark. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 14 to 25. You can see the lifespan of men tapering off close to the 120 mark. Even today in our generation, there are millions of people in the world living over 100 years old, even to 120. Most people know of folks who are alive today over 100 years old. I know that my grandfather made it to 96 and was still playing golf at that age. In Genesis 6-3, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Exodus 23 verse 25, Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will give you a full lifespan. Psalms 92.14 They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Psalms 118 verse 17 I will not die but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Job 5.26 You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it, and apply it to yourself. Let's look at an example in the life of the Apostle Paul when he was an old man. According to the scriptures, he had the choice to continue on living and being a blessing to folks, or to go home and be with the Lord. According to Paul, he could choose. Some folks think that God makes that decision for us. People have a lot more power, or say so, and the right in their life concerning when and how they die than what they think. We are not going to be able to do any good to anybody on earth if we are in heaven. So let's maximize this life on earth today. Personally, I believe for the Christian, 
There's no such thing as a retirement in this life. We keep on serving the Lord until we go home. We are called to bear fruit for the Lord all the days of our life. Philippians 1.21 Paul said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. We have a lot to do with how long we live and the quality of life we live. When we reach the end of our race, we need to have a sense of completion that we finished the work and we kept the faith. The workers are few and the harvest is great. We don't need folks checking out early and leaving the burden on others to take up the slack. Obviously, like it was with Paul, Satan wants to take us out lest we do any more damage to his kingdom. People say, I can't help it and it's not up to me when I die. No, the Bible teaches us to contend for living long and fight and overcome the attacks of the devil. So let's believe God and stand on the promises of God for a long, fruitful life for His glory. Unless we choose to be a martyr, and that's between you and God, no person or demon has the right to take our life. They could not take Jesus' life, and they can't take our lives either. John fourteen twelve. Consider Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. They stood on God's word, and God was faithful to his word and protected them. If we are to honor God with our body and fulfill our God-given destiny and purpose in our generation, then nothing can take our life unless we open the door ourselves. If people believe the lie that it's their time to die at age 30, they are very vulnerable. If they believe the lie that they will die of a heart attack at age 50, like their Uncle John, they are again very vulnerable. If they believe the lie that cancer runs in their family, they are vulnerable to attack. Let's side with the truth of God's word over the facts of your family health history. Truth always overrides facts. Hebrews 11.35 Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. John 10.17 The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. 1 John 5.18 We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one born of God, God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Keys to Living Long on the Earth People in the world are looking for the magic diet and exercise or climate as the secret to long life. Certainly, those things are important. We can't be violating natural laws and expect it not to have an impact on our health. Unfortunately, there are those who watch their diet and exercise and still die young, even Christians. Thank God there are many specific passages in the Bible that provides us with the instructions and principles for entering into God's provision for long life. First, you must be a fighter. And I'm not talking about fighting with other people. We must be convinced that it is our right to live long and that death is our enemy. We're talking about fighting for our redemptive rights. Let's not let the devil steal it from us. Fight the good fight of faith. 
Refuse to lie down and die. We can't be a quitter. So be strong in the Lord and not be a weakling, a complainer, or like the grumbling Israelites. Rejoicing in the face of attack. In everything we give thanks, not for everything. I declare the praises of him just as Paul and Silas did in the Philippian jail, according to Acts chapter 16, verse 11 to 34. I know from personal experience when people are sick for a long time, folks can get tired and it's easy to just let go, tired of the pain and the treatment. Don't blame God or them since we're not in their shoes. But the reality is if we fight and we won't quit, we can live. It won't be easy and it's tough. It looks good to just go on to heaven. Don't be deceived and fall short. Let's live our whole life and be a fighter. Paul fought the good fight of the faith and finished the race. We can't just lie down, roll over, and give up and die just because we are attacked. We need to have a sassy spirit that does not take no for an answer. Our life is worth fighting for, for God's glory. 2 Timothy 4.6 For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And secondly, we must learn to be led by the Holy Spirit. We can't confess protection and override the leading of the Holy Spirit. Follow the direction of God. Jesus did not run headlong into trouble, nor did he put the Father to the test, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 9-12. through 12. The wisdom of God provides us with direction in the affairs of life and orders our footsteps. Some folks, because of foolishness, are not with us today. Like walking in front of a bus and saying the Lord will protect me. People have done stupid things. We have to listen to and be led by the Holy Spirit according to Romans 8.14. We can't separate faith from protection from being led by the Holy Spirit. The two go hand in hand. And the wisdom of the Lord will lead us and protect us to be at the right place at the right time. Why die before our time according to Ecclesiastes 7.17? We receive wisdom from God through the Word of God, and many accidents are prevented just from using common sense. In matters that we are unaware of, the Holy Spirit will keep us ahead of the devil and show us things to come, according to John 16.13. Now the Holy Spirit may say, Don't go there. Or, wait five minutes. The foolish man is warned and keeps on going and suffers harm. You can die before your time that way. We can be led by the Holy Spirit and avoid accidents and traps of the devil like Jesus did. God has given his angels charge over us to protect us. For example, the Holy Spirit will reveal the enemy's plans to us ahead of time. Like when Elisha anticipated the enemy's ambushes by the Holy Spirit for the king of Israel and warned him. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, 
But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Proverbs 19.3 A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Matthew 2.22 But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Matthew 12 verse 14 But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick. A third key to living long on the earth is learning and practicing honor in our life. Living a life of honor is essential to longevity. According to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1-3, through we first learn what honor is by practicing it with our parents as children. This lifestyle of honor and respect for authorities carries on to how we treat our teachers, employers, ministers, and everyone else, including God himself. Rebellion will shorten our life. According to Proverbs 17.11, an evil man is bent only on rebellion. Even if we don't like the person in authority, we are still obligated to respect the position. 1 Samuel 15.23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as the iniquity of idolatry. Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Romans 13.1 Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. A great key to the move of the Holy Spirit is to learn to reverence and honor the things of God and the people of God. This in turn translates into living a long and quality life on the earth. Proverbs 10.27 The fear of the Lord prolongs days. The principle of practicing honor all the days of our lives is a key to living a good and long life. Unfortunately, in our society today, there is so much looseness and slackness. People don't dress up nice for anything except for funerals and weddings. I'm not suggesting that we be religious about this, but it says something when we take the time to keep ourselves. It shows respect. Western society lost some things in the rebellion of the 1950s and 1960s. Just ask school teachers today how kids show respect to them. A spirit of anarchy will shorten the days of those who yield to it. Psalms 15.4 But honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Proverbs 8, verse 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. The fourth principle is to learn to control our tongue. Evil talk is not just talking about cussing and gossip, but speaking doubt and unbelief is evil as well. Just consider the ten spies who came back with the negative, bad, and evil report according to the Bible. They weren't cussing, but they were speaking doubt and unbelief. Now, when the Bible talks about perverse speech, it is referring to talking contrary to the truth. Proverbs 6.12 A worthless person, a wicked man, talks with a perverse mouth. 
Proverbs 8 verse 8, All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8, Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days, according to Psalms 34.12, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's an example of perverse speech, speaking contrary to the truth. When it's hot outside and someone says, Wow, is it ever cold out here? I need a jacket. We realize they are just being sarcastic. But how can they have faith in their words if they are speaking contrary to the truth? We are training our heart not to believe in what we say. To say that we are old when we're only 40 years old is perverse speech. We're only one third of the way there. This is not being legalistic as some people think. The Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, we'll experience what we speak. Numbers 14 verse 36. Now the men whom Moses sent out to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, these very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 in the Amplified. Let no foul or polluting language, nor evil word, nor unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out from your mouth, but only such speech as is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others, as is fitting to the need and the occasion, that it may be a blessing and give grace to those who hear it. Let there be no filthiness, obscenity, indecency, nor foolish and sinful, silly and corrupt talk, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting or becoming, but instead voice your thankfulness to God. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Proverbs 18.21 The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 21 verse 23, He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. It is imperative that we hold our tongue from talking death. We need to watch what we say about other people and judging them. The Lord takes this personal when we talk about others. It's never okay to talk negatively about people. We might think we are just giving our opinion, but it's still judging. It will cost us. You know, it's a freeing thing not have to say anything about folks. It's between them and the Lord anyway. It's none of my business. Instead, pray for them and speak faith over them. Call those things that be not as though they were. When it comes to taking communion, we are admonished to recognize the body of the Lord. I believe that is partly referring to walking in love towards other Christians if you read the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Not walking in love is a reason or a cause for folks to be weak, sick, and to die prematurely. Let's read that, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, died prematurely. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. You know, the Bible has so much to say about the words that we speak. When you look at James chapter 3, verse 2 through 6, it is amazing to realize that the secret to controlling the body is found in controlling our tongue. The tongue is the rudder of our life. The words we choose to speak will determine the course that our life takes. It has the potential of setting in motion God's provision for health and long life, or grants the enemy access to shorten them. James chapter 3 verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Our tongue is the key to our healing. What we confess, we possess. Whether it's confession unto salvation it's also confession unto healing, according to Romans chapter 10. Matthew 12:36. Jesus said, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be saved, and by your words you will be condemned. Now the fifth principle to living long life on the earth is obedience to the plan and will of God for our life. We can't just go off on our own agenda and our own plan and do our own thing, and have the full blessing of God in our life. If we disobey God's will for our life, it's going to cost us. The bottom line is, if we want the perfect will of God in blessing, we have to do the perfect will of God in obedience. Isaiah 1 verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. If people become so hard-headed that they refuse to follow God's will for their life, it will shorten their days. Not that God shortens their days. The devil exploits their disobedience, and it gives them access to their lives. Please consider this. If Jesus is really our Lord and Savior, we aren't free to start a job and quit a job when we want to, or join a church and quit a church when something offends us. We are soldiers in the Lord's army. There are times when things are not going to be comfortable or easy for us, I understand there are times when we want to leave and do something else, but unless the Lord releases us from that commitment, we need to stay put and remain faithful. We can ask the Lord for a transfer, but many times it will come back denied. So are we going to stay where we are, or are we going to be AWOL, away from the will of the Lord? For example, God will lead some folks to a church, but something gets them offended and they leave. He may lead them to a job and get hooked up, and everything is going fine until something rubbed them the wrong way. You know, it may not have even been our fault. Just because someone does not treat us right, does not mean it's okay to just jump out of the will of God. Did we receive new orders from the Lord to make a change? 
Proverbs 29.18, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19, for it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. We can get into trouble by writing our own orders and signing the Lord's name to it and telling people, well, God told me to. Well, I'm going over to such and such place and the Lord would not sign it. So they signed it themselves with the Lord Jesus' name on it. They'll tell people, the Lord has led me and released me from that. I feel led to do this or the other thing. But the Lord did not tell them to do that, and now they are out of the will of God. That will cost us. It opens the door to all kinds of problems in our life. Being out of the perfect will of God, out of His perfect protection and full grace. If we persist in that long enough, it will shorten our life. Not only that, how is God going to promote us to the next thing if we haven't finished the previous task? Selah. So a key to living long on the earth is in finding and getting in and staying in our place that God has ordained for us, obeying His will and following His perfect plan for our life. That means seeking it, praying about it, pursuing and believing for it, and just doing it when we find it out. Stay with it, no matter what. Here's another important point. God does not have to repeat these instructions to us every Monday. Unless He tells us otherwise, we stay where we are, where He told us to be, and keep on doing that until he tells us something different. 1 Corinthians 7.17 Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's not okay to do the will of God reluctantly or grudgingly. We may be obeying, but are we willing about it? That may be a reason why we're not eating so hot. We have a free will, and we can choose to do His will and be willing about it at the same time. If we happen to have a personal preference not to do something, but God says to do it, we can change our attitude about it and get in agreement with the Lord, even if our flesh does not want to. The safest place to be in this world is in the perfect will of God. It takes faith to leave, and it takes faith to stay. Remember, rebellion and disobedience will open the door to the enemy and will shorten our life. Living in sin will age us. The way of the transgressor is hard, makes an old man or woman out of us. Proverbs 13.15 in the Amplified Good understanding wins favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard, like the barren, dry soil or the impassable swamp. Deuteronomy 30.20 That you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the sixth principle is knowing how to rest, live in, and walk in peace. When researchers studied folks who lived over a 100 years old, they were looking for common characteristics. What they found from interviewing them is that they knew something about stress management, even before it became popular. They rarely showed anger and tended not to worry and had a good sense of humor. Even with all the funerals they went to, they handled those emotional blows and forged ahead. They did not fret and worry. You know, there are reasons why Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow and to cast our cares upon him. It is because we are not designed to worry, carry cares, 
fear, and be stressed out because it will take a toll on us. High blood pressure ulcers are due to our bodies getting overloaded. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. We won't live long unless we learn to walk in peace, rest in faith, as mentioned above. When we walk in faith every day, we are walking in the rest of God. No matter what happens, we put our faith and trust in God. The Bible says to be anxious for nothing, no excuses and no exceptions. We are told to give it all over to the Lord. It's not okay to worry about anything. Listen, we are not being irresponsible by not worrying. When we are casting our cares over to the one who can do something about them, when we yield to the temptation of worry, it really boils down to a lack of faith and to pride. By holding on to something we can't take care of and acting like the Savior. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 in the Amplified. Casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on Him. For He cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. Psalms 55.22 Now please get this. We are not to ask the Lord to help us with our problems. He wants to take it all. This way, He will have it and we won't have it. We have heard this teaching before, but are we practicing it? The truth of the matter is, we cannot live stressed out day in and day out and expect to live in full health and long life. Like a piece of machinery, If we use it outside its intended operation and overload it, we will break it by using it for something it was not designed for. We are not designed to worry, to fear, to carry cares, to be anxious and doubt. It will cost us. It will make us old before our time, turn our hair gray and give us wrinkles. Proverbs 19.11 A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. So what are some reasons for being stressed out? It is not just the result of our occupation. We could be on a desert island and still be stressed because we are all alone. Really, in any situation, a person can be stressed if they choose to yield to it. People are stressed not just because of their circumstances, but because they yield to fear and to worry. We are the only ones responsible for it. Happy is the man who is not offended, so do not take offense. Can you picture Jesus worrying, being anxious, and biting his nails, with people always trying to kill him? Jesus was cool and walked in peace, even in a crazy world. Jesus gave us that same peace he walked in, so we would also walk in the same peace he did. If my heart is troubled and afraid, I let it get that way. Look at John 14.27. Resist fear and anxiety as you would resist the devil. When we are tempted to fear, speak the word. Resist that spirit of fear. We are the ones responsible for keeping our hearts from becoming troubled. John 14.27 Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. If the burden seems heavy, something is wrong. The devil wants to make us his pack mule and load us with so many cares and anxieties taking on those responsibilities that belong to the Lord. We should never be burned out. God is not a cruel taskmaster. He does let us have some fun in accordance with this word. 
We can't be led by needs or opportunities. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Satan has a tactic here. His first choice is that we do nothing for God. But if that does not work, he will push us to the other ditch or the other extreme to become a workaholic. Don't believe the lie that God cannot be satisfied and we can never do enough. God knows we are only one person. He can be and is satisfied with us just doing our part. We can push ourselves too far and call it working for God, but God may not have told us to do some things. Wisdom is knowing exactly what the Lord would have us to do, and do only those things, following His plan and pursue His purpose, not adding to it what we think should be done or what other people think. The devil wants to spread us out so thin and become a jack of all trades but master of none. Even if it's a good thing and needs to be done, did he tell us to do it? Remember, in the body of Christ, Jesus will give us our assignments. We won't become weary in well-doing if we only do what he has told us to do. If we are not resting on the inside, we won't be resting on the outside. If we learn to live and rest in peace, we'll live a long time. Everything in the world is trying to pull on us and get something out of us and to stress us out. So resist it. Joel 3.10 Let the weak say I am strong. In Matthew 11.28 Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah 40 verse 29 He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Spiritualizing Experiences in Life Beware of forming spiritual interpretations solely on natural circumstances as a means of understanding the will of God. Since everything in this natural world is subject to change, and is subject to the influence of the devil. Deception can be readily had if we allow our beliefs to be based on what we see, feel, and hear rather than on the Word of God. Personal experience by nature is very subjective and open to a wide range of interpretations, biases, and cultural conditioning. Certainly, there is a lot to be learned from observing the successes and mistakes of others, including our own lives. But if we come to a conclusion that is contrary to plain revelation in God's word, we are always to go with the word of God. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Religious folks will go into one of two ditches. Either they will naturalize the Bible by discounting the supernatural elements in the Bible, like claiming that the parting of the Red Sea, creation in six days, and Balaam's donkey speaking were all figurative. It really didn't happen that way. Since their natural minds can't grasp supernatural realities, They try to explain it away by some natural cause they can understand. The other ditch is to hyper-spiritualize the promises of God, relegating practically everything God promised for us to enjoy in the here and now in our lives 
as something we will receive in the future in heaven. Honestly, it won't do us much good in heaven, now will it? For example, when the Bible talks about healing for the physical body, they interpret it as spiritual healing. Since they're not receiving miracles in their own personal lives, they conveniently claim that miracles were done away with when the early church apostles died. From this religious perspective, just get by in this life, and when we get to heaven, we will all get our rewards. But here's a news flash for those religious folks. Not only do I have the plain revelation of truth that God is still in the miracle working business today, and that all his promises are yes and amen in my life, but I have the fruit of these things in my life today. There's an old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's too late to be talked out of it. I have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I have the proof of it in my life, and God is so good. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. Think about it. The devil is the one who wants us in the ditch in these matters. Obviously, he does not want us to experience all things that pertain to life and godliness and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He wants us to be defeated, oppressed, and robbed in life. 2 Corinthians 6.2 I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 10.5 in the Amplified Inasmuch as we refute arguments and theories and reasonings and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. So when the devil tries to dismiss the supernatural and God's precious promises for our life today, what do we do? We must demolish and refute those arguments with the truth of God's word. It is written. So what is the rationale behind religious folks trying to relegate everything to the future and spiritualize it? First, I believe there are deceptive lies from Satan that they bought into. Second, since they have been indoctrinated with theological theories and human traditions, they have no biblical foundation for faith to receive the provision of God in these matters. So they are obliged to come up with a reason why they are not receiving the blessings of God in their own lives. But why not accept the fact that God's word is true and does not change, and that maybe we miss God somehow? Let's look at a few of what I call spiritual cop-outs. Cop-out number one. Well, I guess it's just not God's will for everyone to be healed. Cop-out number two. You can't expect too much in this life. After all, we're just passing through. And cop-out number three. It's hard to say what God's will is. Sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. These are spiritual cop-outs, basically rolling over and accepting defeat. As Jesus said so often, according to your faith, be it unto you. Instead, let's try looking inwardly for a change. Well, maybe I'm missing it somehow, since God's word is true, and God's word is God's will. I must not understand fully, or perhaps I'm not working the principles of the Bible correctly. So, Father God, I ask you for wisdom in this matter, in Jesus' name, so I can know what adjustments I need to make, so I can judge myself, so I can receive your highest and best for my life. Here is a really important principle for us to understand. Delay is not denial. When Daniel prayed and the answer did not come quickly, as he may have thought, he could have blown the whole thing off and said, well, I guess it just was not the will of God. We come to find out that Gabriel, the archangel, was engaged in spiritual warfare for 21 days. Satan was trying to keep him from bringing the answer to Daniel's prayer. 
When it comes to believing God and standing on His Word, we need to keep standing no matter how long it takes. When we are standing, we are standing by faith, a quiet and still strength, a holy resolve, an unmovable conviction, knowing that it is impossible for God to lie. No fretting, no wringing of our hands in fear, no frantic, repetitious praying. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand. Exodus 14.13 Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Can you see how we have missed it? As Christians in this area of knowing God's will, praying according to God's will, and receiving by faith according to God's will, which is His word, we give up too quick. Remember, delay is not denial. Let's read in Daniel chapter 10 verse 12. Then Gabriel continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Can you imagine if Daniel gave up in prayer, dismissed it as not God's will and just gave up? Gabriel, in mid-fight with the devil, could have said, Oh, devil, never mind. Daniel stopped believing God, and I'm going back to heaven now. Did you know that the angels are ministering spirits sent by God to bring the word of God to pass in our lives? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. We dispatch them on assignments when we stand in faith and speak God's word, and we take them off the job when we speak fear, doubt, and unbelief. Psalms 103 verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. We need to realize that Daniel was standing on a promise from God concerning the deliverance of Israel out of captivity. Daniel was not praying out of presumption. He had scripture on it. Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 to 14 and 29:10 that Israel would be banished from the promised land for 70 years and then restored. Well, that time was coming up, so Daniel was reminding God of his promise. Remember, faith begins where the will of God is known. God's word is God's will. So Daniel's prayer was a prayer of faith because it was a prayer based on the word of God. Daniel chapter 9 verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last seventy years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Isaiah 43.26 Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Psalms 105.8 He remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. Keep reason where it's supposed to be, processing natural information for common sense use. However, when reason tries to take the place of being led by the Holy Spirit, when reason contradicts the revelation of God's word, when reason thinks we are crazy to live by faith, 
we go with the word. To our natural mind, living by faith may not make a lot of sense. Realizing our finite minds are limited, but our born-again, recreated spirits are not. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Mark 9.23 If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14.2 is something our natural minds can't understand. But that's okay. Our confidence comes from knowing God's will is God's word. So we can pray with confidence and boldness. If I seem to be rather strong in this matter, my conviction comes from God's word, like Abraham in Romans 4.20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, which is his word, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of Him. 2 Corinthians 3.12 Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 2 Timothy 3.14 But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So no more building our beliefs and doctrines by what we have seen happen in the lives of others or even our own life. Our beliefs are to be rooted and established in the written word of God. 2 Corinthians 5.7 For we walk by faith, not by sight. Otherwise, the enemy will have a field day with our minds with all kinds of doubts. The cure for doubt is God's word, and the cure for unbelief, which is a stubborn refusal to believe the truth, is repentance. Mark 16.14 Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Mark 16.14 in the New King James Version states, He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe. James 1.6 concerning asking God for wisdom. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Luke 6.49 Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like, who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but did not shake, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Here's another sacred cow that needs to be kicked over. Some folks have the misinformed idea that God makes people crippled and deformed at birth so that he can somehow be glorified in it through their struggle to overcome the handicap. In my opinion, this evil line of thinking can only come from the enemy. Remember, we live in a fallen world with death on the loose. This is the reason for birth defects, not some mysterious sovereign will of God. 
The real mystery is that we have bought into those lies for so long. In the beginning of John chapter 9, we read an account of a man born blind. The religious thought of the day was that birth defects could be traced to the sin of their parents. One might reason that God set this man up to be born this way based on the Lord's comment in John chapter 9 verse 4. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Remember, we have to look at the whole counsel of God's word. No part of scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in the scripture. For example, if a given verse is capable of two renditions of variant interpretations, and one of those interpretations goes against the rest of scripture, while the other is in harmony with it, then the latter interpretation must be used. 2 Corinthians 13.1 Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the Bible tells us to give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. We give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, the glory of God was demonstrated in the blind man's life when Jesus had undid what the devil had done through the fall of man in the Garden of Eden which had set in motion the curse of satanic oppression, marring this man's life with physical blindness. Let's read this account in John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, We must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Acts 10.38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. In Luke thirteen sixteen, we see Jesus healing the crippled woman. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? Luke four eighteen, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in the light of the rest of scripture, and these listed above, just to name a few, the correct interpretation is that God is not responsible for birth defects, sickness, disease, or death. That is the devil's doing. Jesus came to bring life and that much more abundantly, according to John 10.10, to undo what the devil did. Let's look at another example concerning our good friend Lazarus, who had died. Like the blind man, folks have read into what Jesus had said, something that was not there at all. We know this because their conclusions fly in the face of the rest of the New Testament. Some conclude that God allowed Lazarus to die just so he could raise him from the dead meaning that God causes people to be sick so he can make them well and so be glorified. John 11 verse 4 When he heard of this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. 
That's like the world creating a crisis, a manufactured crisis, so that they can come up with a solution in order to get the credit, but they were responsible for the problem in the first place. Or that makes as much sense as me starving my children on purpose and then arriving one evening with a banquet of food just to show how good of a provider I am. Besides, if that notion was true, that God makes people sick to make them healed, then every Christian who becomes sick should automatically be healed, right? No, what the devil meant for evil by killing Lazarus, Jesus worked the good and raised him from the dead. God does not create evil so that he can turn around and do good and so be glorified. That is twisted theology. Romans chapter 3 verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. Here is another important biblical principle that we need to get a hold of. God does not contradict himself. So if God makes us sick so he can turn around and heal us and so be glorified, then according to the Bible, God is a lawbreaker and is divided against himself. So how can his kingdom stand? God and the devil don't ever switch sides and help each other out. God is only about salvation and Satan is only about destruction. Galatians 2.18 If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Matthew 12.25 Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, Jesus said, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? This is a critical concern that must be dealt with, the notion that God makes people sick so he can turn around and make them well. For starters, it would be a blatant contradiction on God's part and he would cease to be God. It would also mean that God was in league with Satan in the sickness and disease business. Show me one scripture in the Gospels where Jesus ever made somebody sick or refused to heal them. There is none. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 13 and verse 11, we see a woman who was delivered by a spirit of infirmity. A woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. This sickness was the direct result of an evil spirit afflicting her. The Bible makes it clear that Satan is in the sickness business, and God is in the healing business, and the two are never intertwined. We need to remember why Jesus came to earth in the first place, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Folks will try to read into John 9, 1, that it was God's will for this man to be born blind so that Jesus would heal the man and thus be glorified. That would make as much sense today as for a doctor going around purposely making people sick so he would have more business created in treating them for the illnesses that he had caused. We would throw a person like that in jail. Here's another angle. The same logic of God making people sick could be applied to God making people sin, so he could be glorified by saving them from sin and so show how holy and righteous he is. No, the scriptures do not condone evil, so that good may result, whether it's sin or sickness, as already stated in Romans chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. 
Jesus uses common sense to display such erroneous notions that slander the character of our loving Heavenly Father. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus said, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? James 1.16 Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The only power Satan has over Christians is deception, which comes in the form of lies and half-truths. His goal is to tie and bind up Christians with his ropes of lies, deception, and religious tradition. Why, you may ask, so he can plunder, rob, and steal from us all the blessings, promises, and inheritance God has given us to enjoy in this life and to marginalize our testimony. When we get to heaven, we won't need healing, peace, victory, or prosperity. It'll be given. Nor will the devil be there to try to steal it from us. We need to realize the devil is the thief and wants what God has given us in Christ, all of it, if we allow him to. Matthew 12.29 Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house? Let's now look at a handout of healing at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5 verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lay, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? It may seem like a silly question for Jesus to ask a man who had been crippled for 38 years, Do you want to get well? Was Jesus being cruel and insensitive? No, he was trying to stir his faith. Jesus was basically saying, Throw me a faith bone here. Give me something to work with, because I love you and I want to heal you. Jesus was moved with pity, mercy, and compassion for this man, having learned of his long-time condition as a paralytic. So Jesus heals the man. Great. All is well in verse 7 through 9, right? Well, if we read in John chapter 5 verse 9, the plot thickens. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowds that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Look what Jesus gets for doing a good deed. It backfires on him, right? No, I think this was also done as an important faith lesson for us to know today. Spiritual handouts are not effective and usually only result in a short-term healing anyway. Contrast that story with what happened with the crippled man in Lystra. Paul was preaching the gospel to a crowd and a crippled man was listening. Evidently, the gospel message that Paul was preaching 
included the subject of healing, because in order for this man to have faith to be well, he had to have heard it in Paul's preaching. According to Romans 10 verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I would venture to say that this man, in contrast to the other man, kept his healing, because what gets you healed keeps you healed. Just like what gets people wealthy keeps them wealthy. Good disciplined business sense. In comparison to those who win the lottery, usually blow it all. Folks who study the word on healing and are disciplined to get it into their hearts will generally keep their healing. Acts chapter 14 verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and who had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was such a stickler for people to exercise faith in him and his word? It's because he was looking for a long-term permanent healing. Only having faith in our heart will do that. Jesus knew he would be doing a great disservice to people by healing them without their faith being involved, as was the case with the man by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus had warned the man that a worse thing was liable to come upon him if he did not stop sinning. If we don't have the word of faith in our hearts, Satan will simply come back, put those lying symptoms back on our bodies, will believe the lie, and the same condition comes back and potentially a lot worse. As the old adage goes, give a man a fish and feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. This is why Jesus taught so much on the subject of faith during his earthly ministry. This is why we teach so much on the subject of faith as well today. Honestly, signs and wonders are primarily a tool of evangelism in reaching the lost. Since unbelievers are not in the new covenant, they need gifts of the Spirit, Mark 16.20. The expectation for believers is for their needs to get met through faith in God's word. Christians have been taught to wait at the pool of Bethesda, looking for a spiritual handout. Jesus has already prepared a table before us and beckons us to come and dine, Psalms 23.5. No need to starve, my dear friends. Matthew 12.43 Jesus said when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Beware of the fleece. A huge distinction between Old Covenant believers and the New Covenant saints is the way in which we serve, worship, and know God. For the Old Covenant believer, God was understood by outward signs and physical symbols. Since they were not born again, their spirit man was not alive to God, but was spiritually dead due to sin. This limited God and his dealings with those folks to the natural or physical realm in order to get their attention. For example, let's look at the man named Gideon. A quick background. Israel was backslidden, worshipping idols, which opened the door for Satan to use the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples to oppress them in a miserable way. Read Judges chapters 6-8. through Finally, the Israelites cried out to God for help, and the Lord sent an angel to speak to Gideon. Well, the angel appeared to Gideon as he was gathering some food in secret, so the Midianites would not see him. Judges chapter 6 verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our father told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. First, did you notice that the angel by faith called him a mighty warrior? Certainly a faith statement of calling those things that are not as though they were, according to Romans 4.17. I find it even more interesting that Gideon had the gall to accuse the Lord of abandoning his people when it was the Israelites who had abandoned the Lord and prostituted themselves to idols. Ah, but the Lord is merciful, faithful, and kind. To make a long story short, Gideon agrees to go ahead and lead Israel out of the oppression of their enemies. But he wants a sign to make sure that what the angel was saying was true. I guess the angel's word was not good enough for Gideon. But it was for the centurion, as we read in Matthew chapter 8 verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Anyway, I should not be so hard on Gideon. He was not born again like we are, and did not have as much of God's revelation available to him as we do today. So Gideon asked for a sign. I guess if he is going to risk his neck, he wanted some proof that this was God's will for his life. In Judges chapter 6 verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel from my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon arose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me ask just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. My question is this. Could not have Satan appeared as an angel of light and done for Gideon what the angel of the Lord had done? Absolutely. And I don't think Gideon would have known the difference because he did not have the Holy Spirit within him bearing witness with his spirit that it was the devil. 2 Corinthians 11.13 For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now God put up with Gideon's silly little test because he was spiritually dead and incapable of hearing the still small voice of the Holy Spirit inside of him. We, however, do not have such an excuse. In the New Covenant, there is a greater expectation from God for us to live by faith. In addition to the Word of God, God leads His children through the inward witness of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. This is what is meant to be led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit concerning God's will and plan for our life. This is referred to as the Rhema Word of God while the Logos Word of God is talking about the written Word of God or the Bible. The Spirit of God will give us peace and joy in our spirit as a way of agreeing with and encouraging us in a certain direction. If He wants us to stop, wait, or not pursue a certain direction, there will be a stern check in our spirit that grabs our attention. 
The manner in which the Holy Spirit leads us has a close correlation to traffic signals, like green means go, yellow means to slow down and pray, and red means stop, look, and listen. Be led by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Thomas kind of faith is a faith that has to see first in the natural, with the five senses before one believes. However, this is not Bible faith. This is the realm where unbelievers operate, the physical and mental realms. Christians who continue to live that way are called carnal or worldly according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1. We need to grow up by feeding and practicing the word of God in our life. Then we can discern truth from error and then we will learn to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. John 20 verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food. For you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? A side note concerning Old Covenant believers. Notice that their form of worship was outward and physical, since they did not know what it was to truly worship God from their spirit. Why else would Jesus say in John chapter 4 verse 23, Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. That is why David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 14 danced in the natural, the only way he knew how. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. There is a new covenant form of worship that is different from the old covenant, and to mix the two is like substituting brass for gold. 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 26. I don't have time to cover this here. In the new covenant, we have the capacity to worship God in tongues and in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We worship God with sanctified bodies, renewed minds, in reverence and in awe, with uplifted hands. You can read these passages of scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 14 to 18, Ephesians chapter 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. God wants us to grow up and learn to be led by the Holy Spirit in our spirit. So are we led by fleeces? physical signs that can be counterfeited by the enemy? Are we going to follow the safe witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? 
In the new covenant, we live by faith. God now deals with us through our born-again, recreated human spirit. This way, Satan cannot deceive us, because he has no access there. Let us see people by their spirit and through the eyes of God's word. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Hebrews 8 verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother say, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. Galatians 2.6 As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. 2 Corinthians 5.16 So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. One final point, I personally believe that most problems in a believer's life originates from actions and decisions he or she has made. It's so easy to blame the devil or reason that God in his sovereignty is trying to teach me some deep spiritual truth. If only we had not maxed out our credit cards, dated that unbeliever, got mad and got offended at that person. The list goes on and on. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 through 8. God is never at fault and never to blame if something does not work out for us. Proverbs 19 verse 3. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. We are personally responsible for a lot of things. Sure, the devil does come in and tax us even when we are walking in God's will. But let's not be so quick to rationalize our problems on something else. God uses his word to teach his children. If your child disobeyed you, would you put cancer on him? Make him a cripple or break his leg? No way. The authorities would put you in jail for child abuse, and rightly so. Our Heavenly Father does not treat His children this way. Some may think I am overly simplifying this, but I love Jesus' style. He always seems to keep things simple. Truth is that way. When man gets his hands into it, things have a tendency to get complicated. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. The goal in this episode was to reveal through Scripture the truth on the matter concerning the unchanging nature of God in regards to His divine will to heal all, all the time, through faith in His Word. When we fail to receive, it's not because God or His Word failed. Otherwise, God would cease to be God. Rather, we missed it somewhere. So let's ask God for wisdom, learn from our mistakes, change, and receive the next time. Finally, understand what the Bible defines as suffering according to God's will. It is so crucial for us to grasp it. Number one, it's learning to offer our physical bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. In other words, sanctification. And number two, is understanding in this life we will suffer persecution as Christians. Learning to act wisely can minimize it, 
but won't eliminate it altogether. And that's okay, because Jesus has promised to give us his peace and grace to always triumph in life through him. God bless. I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life Study Series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.